Hello, and welcome back to 866 Politics. I'm one of your hosts, Ellis Delane Southerd. You probably know me if you've listened to us before, but now we have added over 20 new hosts. So it's not just me, Nana. It is a team podcast now. And I'm actually joined by four of our team members today on our first episode. Um, Caitlin, how about we start with you with introductions? Hi guys, my name is Caitlin. I go to Brooklyn Technical High School and I'm an incoming junior. There we go. Okay, Emma, do you want to go next? Hi guys, my name is Emma. I use she, her pronouns. I'm studying political science at the University of Georgia. Woohoo! Okay, Lily. My name is Lily. I also use she, her pronouns and I'm actually moving out to college in two days. So hopefully I will be more equipped to talk about stuff than um, and I'm going to be majoring in international relations. So, woohoo. Super fun. Okay, Reen. Hi, guys. I'm Ren Saed, and um, I go to school at, uh, in Lebanon called ACS Beirut, and I'm a rising senior. Yeah, so, okay. You said Reen was okay, but is it pronounced Ren? <laughs> we have Both to are okay because okay. I just, I'm used to everything because, like, I go to an American school, so, like, all the teachers just, like, call me what you call me, so I'm kind okay. of used to it. Okay, okay, so okay. I kind of accepted both. Okay, cool. Um, so either works, Reen, Ren, whatever. Um, but yeah, so Ren lives in Lebanon, which is super cool. And we are an international team. We have people from eight countries. Um, most of us on this episode today live in the United States and are from the United States, but you'll be able to see some um, more international folk, which is super exciting because we'll be hearing like different worldviews as we talk about different topics. Um, and we have more of a formal introduction on our Instagram, so you can go see that. Um, once this episode is posted, we'll have a few new posts up kind of explaining our team and how we're going to work in the future and stuff like that. But for now, I want to get started with today's topic, which is very relevant in the world. I'm sure um, even if you don't pay attention to politics, usually you may have seen this in the news. It is the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, so I'm going to start laying a little bit of the groundwork. Um, oh, I should also specify which kind of correspondents and analysts that we have on our podcast today. So Ren is going to be our Middle Eastern correspondent. Um, Emma is going to be our government policy slash political theory correspondent. Lily is going to be our historical um, analyst. And then um, Caitlin is going to be like our U.S. correspondent domestic politics type of stuff. So we each have our own roles. It's very intersectional though. So we'll kind of all be stepping on each other's toes, which is the point. Um, It's going to be very discussion-based and kind of a casual conversation for you guys to listen to. So that's what we're dealing with today. But um, because I do have a historical analyst on our podcast today, Lily, thank you so much uh, for being here. I'm not going to go into super, super deep context. This issue has some deep, rich history, which Lily will be covering, but I'm going to kind of go over the more current history. So I'm actually going to go back to February of 2020 to give you some context. Um, So if you haven't been following the news in the past few weeks or the past few months, this is when you need to start listening. Um, So starting in February of 2020, Trump had signed a deal with the Taliban. Now, Caitlin, in like pre-planning, made a very good note to me to make it very clear that this deal was with the Taliban and not with the Afghanistan government. It's a very important detail to know because some U.S. politicians, um, especially Democrats, vow to never negotiate with terrorists, but Trump did. So the Taliban is a terrorist organization and he stroke stroke, striked a deal with the Taliban, not the Afghanistan government. And Caitlin also told me, which I did not know, that the Taliban had to reach certain requirements or like a certain threshold in what they had to do in order to have the privilege or freedom, I guess, in order to speak with the U.S. government and President Trump. So this was kind of a big deal because the Afghanistan president had to allow them or Yeah, I guess allow them to do this. So that happened in February in 2020. If you want more details on the deal, I definitely recommend looking up articles. But just as a synopsis and an overview, um, the bottom line was the U.S. would get out of Afghanistan in 14 months. We have been there for about 20 years. Um, President Joe Biden has called it America's longest war, um, as many other politicians has. Uh, So the fact that this deal was saying that we were withdrawing troops was a big deal. Um, And then on the Taliban side of the deal, we were going to withdraw troops if they would behave. And behaving involves 
not ki killing uh, civilians and trying to stop making Afghanistan the capital of terrorist organizations. Um, and the Taliban actually also said that they were going to start peace talks with the Afghan government, which was a big deal. Um, they also said that they would protect U.S. troops and not kill them on purpose. So this was a big deal. Um, there was kind of backlash on it because a lot of Democrats in the United States were saying, you're legitimizing the Taliban by even speaking to them. Um, some were saying, of course, that the Taliban side of the deal was unrealistic because as Lily is about to get into, the Taliban ruled Afghanistan in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and they were known to do some pretty harsh stuff to their citizens. So it's like, why are you even trusting them? That was a big um, criticism. It required a lot of faith in the Taliban. Um, and another criticism was that there was no enforcement mechanism in this deal. So if the Taliban didn't do what it said it was going to do, we had no means through what we shook on to kind of sanction them or just get mad at them, to put it quite plainly. Um, so that was kind of the deal that was signed in February 2020. Flash forward 14 months, which is what the deal said. Now, President Biden had to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to honor this deal, which means in April of 2021, which was the very start of his term, he was only a few months in, is he going to pull out troops or is he going to not stand by this deal and kind of escalate conflict by sending more troops? Um, he kind of... Uh, he kind of spoke to the American people like this was his only two decisions. Um, I, another criticism I saw of President Joe Biden in this instance was, well, you didn't have to follow the deal. Um, like it, it wasn't such a binary as he was making it. But then, of course, the argument comes, well, Biden supported withdrawing troops. So this is kind of what he had to abide by. He had to follow the Trump timeline. This is how he put it in a way. So in April, he decides on April 14th, to be exact, he decides he's going to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, which is obviously a significant date because of the 9-11 attacks. So uh, to be clear, a lot of people, and this isn't even getting to what's been happening the past few weeks. So this is just some like current context. Um, and a lot of people, and we're gonna get into this argument in a second, and I bet Caitlin will address it with some other people, um, is a lot of people are blaming Joe Biden for what is happening right now in Afghanistan. And although, you know, you can make arguments for many different sides, um, it should be noted that most Americans supported withdrawing troops at the beginning of the Trump administration. So Biden announcing that he was withdrawing troops in April was not a surprise because we knew we had this Taliban deal all the way back in February 2020. And we knew that our presence in Afghanistan for 20 years was not doing any more good. And I think Ren is actually going to talk about that as well. Kind of was the Afghan war worth it, et cetera. So that's kind of where we were at until a few weeks ago. Um, there was 3,500 troops left. For context, there was 100,000 during the Obama years. So that is a severe de-escalation. Um, but in July of 2021, the U.S. troops leave the Bagram airfield. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think I am. Um, and that's kind of been the center of our presence in Afghanistan. So that was a huge deal. Um, they shut off the lights. They left in the middle of the night. And that was it. Um, but then starting on August 15th, um, the Taliban started or they invaded Kabul, which is the capital of, of Afghanistan days before. It only took a few days in August for them to kind of take over um, some major cities besides the capital. But then once they invaded the capital, the world started really, really paying attention because it was very symbolic. Um, and then people started fleeing to the airport and 17,000 people have been evacuated this week. They've been taken to um, Qatar. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but um, and then uh, countries like Germany, Britain, Denmark, Italy, et cetera. There's a whole list have been trying to take in refugees. Um, and then the most recent news I can give you is that the U.S. said that there's potential security threats around the Kabul International Airport. There's uh, speculation of an ISIS attack, which the difference between ISIS and the Taliban is they're actually enemies. ISIS is the Islamic State's affiliation. Um, and so even though ISIS was defeated in 2019, it still operates on a lower scale in Kabul. Uh, so that is where we're at. I'm sure if you've been on the internet, you've been seeing horrifying videos of um, Afghan people trying to flee on cargo um, airplanes. 
You've probably been seeing people like running beside the airplane, trying to jump onto the wings. It is a desperate time, which segues into why people are uh, reacting this way is because of the history of Taliban rule. I should also note before I pivot to Lily and giving us more historical context that uh, the Taliban is no, this country is no longer called Afghanistan. It's called the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So that is what they have declared it. Um, They're trying to rebrand themselves. They've done several press conferences where they said, we will respect women's rights and we're going to be less violent than we were a few decades ago. But a lot of people are skeptical of this and why they're skeptical. Lily, it's your time to shine. Let's take it back to the Cold War. So go ahead. Hey, hi guys. Um, just a little quick disclaimer. If I say anything that sounds like horrifically incorrect, please just yell at me. Um, <laughs> but <I'm laughs> we <gonna> will. Talk- <laughs> Afghanistan, again, as Ella said, it's a country with, well, first of all, such a long history. And second of all, such a rich, really, really complex history because there are so many players when we're looking at the history of the nation. I'm going to talk a little bit first about the rivalry and the conflict between Britain and Russia, actually in the mid 19th century, not to get too like deep into the minutia of the history, but because it is important when we talk about the Cold War and when we talk about why the Soviets have a presence in Afghanistan in the 80s in the first place. So I think it's important to note Afghanistan... (laughs) I think it's important to note. I need to stop talking like I'm in a school presentation. Oh my God. (laughs) You're totally fine. Just do whatever. You're killing it. (laughs) Um, So Afghanistan geographically is in a really, really important location, obviously, because it's kind of like the crossroads to Central and South Asia, which as an area is super, super rich in natural resources. So obviously Britain in the 19th century, because they're Britain and like that's what Britain does, they colonize the whole world wants in. Um, And by this point in the 19th century, Britain has already colonized most of the Indian subcontinent. And they're worried about Russia expanding their influence south. So they're like, you want to know what would be great if we annexed Afghanistan? Keep in mind that Afghanistan, like as an entity, was not actually recognized by the United States until 1933 or 34. Behold, the historical analyst not having dates in front of me. I want to say it was 34. But the point is, is it's super recent. Like, I had no idea. I thought that, like, the entity of Afghanistan as a country had just been around forever and it was something everyone accepted, but it's actually, like, pretty recent. Um, So, anyways, uh, Britain attempts to annex Afghanistan and Afghanistan is like, hey, we would like a little bit of autonomy. Like, please, just a sprinkling of autonomy. Stop trying to colonize the whole world. I'm not going to go into the minutiae of the British-Afghan wars, but the point is, after Britain gets, I mean, completely decimated after World War I, um, Afghanistan beats them, and that's really no longer an issue. But the lasting impacts is that it's destabilized Afghanistan a ton as a country. Um, So again, this is mid-19th century. We flash forward to, so, you know, talking about colonialism, talking about destabilization, just to set the stage for kind of the tensions that will grow in the country, as we've obviously seen. Um, As a country, it's pretty dark. Unfortunately, it's pretty like consistently been subject to kind of undue aggression, kind of both from like internal and external forces. Because on one hand, you have Britain putting a lot of pressure on them. You have the Soviets putting a lot of pressure on them. Then you have the US putting a lot of pressure on them. But on the other hand, you have a lot of ethnic and religious minorities in Afghanistan that have been living there for hundreds of years. And there are obviously going to be tensions there. Like, that's not something that's specific to Afghanistan. Um, So anyways, flash forward to the Cold War. The Soviets and the USA both have, obviously, a vested interest in nation building. And the Red Army um, in Afghanistan by the 70s actually have a pretty decent relationship with one another. There is a quote from an Afghan leader whose name I am probably going to butcher, so I'm not going to say it. I'm sorry. Um, but this Afghani leader makes a joke that's super famous where he's like, haha, yes, I like to light my American cigars with Soviet lighters. And that just, that really pisses off the USA. We're like, oh my God, like communism bad, Red Army bad. <laughs> so at this point, the Soviets and the Afghan, uh, the Afghan government, excuse me, have I don't know if it's fair to say that they have like a symbiotic relationship. I don't know if I can make that claim like in good faith, but it's not bad, right? Like they're kind of helping each other out. They're allies. Um, And flash forward to the eighties. Oh my gosh. I just lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. 
Um, and the Red Army invades Afghanistan because, again, natural resources, like, follow the money, guys. That's what this is all about. Right. Um, and we can kind of pinpoint U.S. involvement to 1979 because as the Afghan rebel fighters or the Mujahideen are fighting the Soviets, we're like, OK, this isn't good. We have an interest in nation building. We want in. We want to have some influence. So we start funneling weapons and money as per usual, like this happens all throughout the Middle East to the Mujahideen. Or do you guys know how to pronounce that? Because I've heard people pronouncing it a couple different ways. Um, I think you're pronouncing it correct. But um, so I'm pretty sure you're, you're saying it correct. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> I, I was like, I wouldn't know how to pronounce it. So congratulations. No, I was like, is it phonetic? Like, I have no idea. Anyways, um, I promise we're getting to the actual Taliban history now. There's just, there's so much. And I know that I, like, as, you know, newsflash, like a suburban 18-year-old who's never gone to college, like, it was confusing for me. So laying yeah, out the groundwork, no, whatever. That's, I'm so impressed right now because you're, like, your your ability to explain, it's, it's confusing. That's why I wanted to make this episode is <laughs> because people, like, even myself, like, watching this go down in the news, I'm like, why like what is it why should I care about this and that's really what you know getting that's why the history matters is anyways I could talk about this for a while keep going Lily you're doing awesome sick okay so we can kind of pinpoint when the U.S. starts to get involved in 1979 because that's roughly when at least what we have public records of um when we start sending aid to the Mujahideen and I don't know if this was just a product of like me being unintelligent and like not being uh, prior to obviously like research being super knowledgeable about this specific issue. Um, but I think it's kind of a common misconception. A lot of Americans think of the Mujahideen as one like cohesive fighting force that kind of like all abides by the same creed, like they're all fighting for the same thing. Um, and it really couldn't be farther from the truth because it's kind of a situation where like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Their one main goal was to get Soviet influence and communist influence out of Afghanistan. They're like, we're sick of being exploited by foreigners. We just want to do our own thing. We don't want you here. But after right. they kicked the Red Army's butt, like the Red Army was absolutely no match for this fighting force, which is super cool for the, uh, the Afghani citizens. Don't get me wrong, because they did win um, like really spectacularly from a military standpoint. Um, after the Soviets get kicked out of Afghanistan, all of a sudden now you have all of these fighters from the Mujahideen that want different things for the country. So on one hand, you have the Islamic kind of radical sect who want to enact a really strict, really narrow version of the Quran and of Islamic rule on the country that Sunni and Shia Muslims disagree on, that different ethnic groups disagree on. Um, and on the other hand, a lot of the Mujahideen, or actually most of the Mujahideen, were either disillusioned leftists and Maoists who didn't approve of foreign influence in the country, or they were just normal citizens who didn't like the fact that, you know, if their grandpa spoke out against the Soviet Union or the Red Army, he would disappear or get tortured until he didn't speak out against the state. So now you have all of these fighters who have been receiving money and weapons from the United States, and now they don't really have a common cause anymore. They don't have a common goal, um, which is obviously kind of a recipe for tension. Um, where the Taliban, as we know it in modern history, comes in is a lot of leaders of the Taliban fought with the Afghan Mujahideen and received um, direct or indirect, that's kind of, you know, maybe up for debate, money, uh, funding and weapons from the United States while they fought with the Mujahideen. So they received weapons and money from the U.S. as part of its policy against the Cold War foe, the Soviet Union. Um, so now we have the Taliban and they have weapons and they have money and they have an established presence in the country. Um, the Soviets withdraw the year is actually 1989. So it's about a 10 year period of like absolute instability, like nothing's going right. So many, I don't have numbers on it, unfortunately, but I can only imagine like how many civilians die and everybody's suffering. So by the time the Taliban um, or the Mujahideen, I'm sorry, at this point, takes power in 1992 in Kabul, Everybody's like, great, we just want order. Like, we just want our country to be stable. We don't want foreign forces causing trouble anymore. So when we're looking at, like, radical, especially Islamic sects in Afghanistan, like, I want to try and understand where people from com are coming from because I feel like as an American, we so often hear, like, oh, my gosh, why don't they just fight back? Like, why, don't, why doesn't Afghanistan just, like, 
you know, have a little Hunger Games revolution moment. And it's like, well, it's not that simple. If you've been living your entire life and all you've known is violence and instability and famine, and this group comes in and says, we'll make it better for you because we are the same. Like, we want the same things. We'll reinstill morality in the country, blah, blah, blah. Even if you have a little inkling of like, oh my gosh, these rules are kind of strict. Like if I'm a woman, I have to wear a hijab. I have to wear a burqa. I can't go to school. Like at what point do you just kind of fold because you just want things to like have some sense of normalcy? So that's not really historical. It's just kind of a me thought, but. Yeah, no, I've, I've thought about that too. As an American, I've just, uh, ignorance. That's all I'm going to say. Ignorance. I just, I don't understand. And that's why when I was doing research on this, it started making sense. And when you're talking about it, I'm like, okay, this is, this is a lot more rich in history than I thought, but I think, yeah. And, and one of the questions I'm going to ask at the end to like all of us, we can all talk about this um, kind of has to do with that. Um, Cause most of us are Americans besides Ren. Um, so yeah, that was, my mind is blown right now. Um, picking up on that, I kind of want Caitlin and Ren to kind of tag team this, um, but I kind of want to talk about specifically because this current of events right now is um, involves the United States. It's not just Taliban and Afghanistan forces fighting. Um, the U.S. is very much involved and Lily just talked about how we funded the Taliban in order to fight the Soviets. Uh, so my question is, because again, I'm learning and we're all learning, if we went in, and this is going to be kind of Caitlin's domain, if we went in, I'm confused. Okay, here's my question. I'm confused on war on terror. We entered Afghanistan, to my understanding, to disassemble Al-Qaeda, right? Because of the 9-11 attacks. So defeated Al-Qaeda, you know, eventually Osama bin Laden was assassinated when President Obama was president. Uh, why did we stay in Afghanistan if Al-Qaeda was defeated? Why did it all of a sudden become about the Taliban? What is the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda? I know I posed that question to Ren, which is why I'm saying you guys can kind of tag team it. But I just, because I feel like that's a common misconception that I don't understand right now. Why is this all this news about the Taliban, but we originally entered because of the 9-11 attacks with Al-Qaeda? Ren, do you want to start? Uh, basically, the Taliban basically let the Al-Qaeda take a safe haven in like the territories. And I think that's what made like that's what made the Taliban also like a big part of this, even though there were many sources claiming like that the Taliban didn't know, like they didn't know that Al-Qaeda was going to do this and they didn't know about it. Like it's kind of hard to believe because they are a terrorist organization and like they, you know, they're like it's like a, it, they are allies at the end of the day. So. Like in terms of the main difference between the two, from what I've read, it's more like Al-Qaeda has more of like a jihadist mindset. So anyone who isn't like Muslim or like doesn't follow the religion of Islam is going to is like the enemy. So anyone who isn't Muslim is going to, you know, like they want to defeat them because they see them as a threat to their beliefs. Like they see Western culture as a threat. They see all of that as a threat. Uh, Al-Taliban is more like the Taliban is more, um, they're more like, they, they care more about what's happening within their borders. So they don't really see Western culture as a threat. They're not like really aiming to like defeat everyone outside of Afghanistan. They care more about what's happening within their borders and they're more like, like oppressive towards the people within their borders. So that's kind of, I think what I've read the main differences. Okay, got it. Cool. Caitlin, do you want to add on to that? Um, I think she's pretty spot on. That's what I've been reading. Um, I think regarding um, nation building, I'm not sure um, why we stayed to um, quote unquote nation build, but I'm pretty sure. I think President Bush wanted to, um, you know, build up Afghanistan's economy and um, political democracy. So I guess that's sort of nation building or that's probably the direct um, definition. But Biden has stated that the nation's interest um, speaking on the U.S.'s nation's national interest was to um, just get the people who attacked us on 9-11 and made sure that the Afghan, the base in Afghanistan were never able to um, use, to be used to attack um, the U.S. ever again. So yeah, that's what Biden has stated. And I'm pretty sure that is what I've researched. Okay, yeah. So I read 
the New York, there's a New York Times opinion piece that actually came out today or yesterday um, that I read right before this. And again, keep in mind, listeners, this is an opinion piece. Also, a lot of things, I should have mentioned this before, but a lot of things that we've been saying also have been opinions. Um, we don't claim as an organization to be nonpartisan. Uh, we are, you know, taking stances individually. That being said, there might be moments when we disagree. So please take everything that we're saying with a grain of salt. Do your own research, obviously. We are giving you statistics, so hopefully what we're saying is fact, but there's also going to be some biases and opinions mixed in there because of the experiences we have, because of where we live, um, because of where we are in terms of learning and understanding the world. So, and also, yeah, we're also youth. So we're, again, still learning and we're learning alongside you. So that's a quick disclaimer. But going on with this opinion piece, um, I read by a guy who has been in Afghanistan. He's clearly done some like diplomatic work. I don't know where he leans politically, didn't look into it that much. But he basically said that um, the reason that we stayed in Afghanistan was to the was to accomplish the main goal in the beginning, which to make sure that Afghanistan was no longer a breeding ground for uh, organizations, people, plans that can attack the United States again. Like that's the bottom line, apparently. Again, this is an opinion. There's not like some official goal that is written in stone, um, you know, in Congress or at the Capitol, but that is what is to be understood. So I just wanted to see if that was supported. I didn't, I didn't look into it too much, but I mean, I guess that makes sense to me why we stayed so long. But um, I also, I want to turn to Ren real quick because you did message me before the filming. And I think this kind of clarification is super important. You wanted to talk about um, if you believe the Afghan war, our presence in Afghanistan was justified. Do you want to touch a little bit up, but on that? I think that was one of the questions yeah, I asked I earlier. So I want to get a little more political. So there's this theory that, that I learned in my global politics class. It's called the just war theory. So basically, it's, um, it's used to analyze whether a war is morally correct, and there's two com key components to it. So there's the right to go to war, and the, then there's the right of conduct in war. So basically, um, initially, many people viewed the U.S. like entering Afghanistan, invading it, um, was, you know, just because obviously it's, uh, they put it under the right of self-defense against um, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. But... Um, Part of the just war theory is also about basically you have to analyze the probability of success. So, um, so you have to analyze the harm that you're going to put on the people. Like, you know, you're going, you're going, you're going to induce harm on people. So you need to make sure that that's going to be um, balanced with the outcome, with the success and the goals that you want to achieve. So from what we've seen, like they were trying to get rid of the Taliban fully, but ta the Taliban still existed after 20 years of war, and the war, you know, led to you know, both U.S. troop deaths, but also like hundreds of Afghanistan civilians. And not just like that, but it's like trauma, destruction, um, you know, destruction of their homes, just a lot. And just like home displacement, a lot that just went on. So basically, if you really want to like look at it from a political theory, the war isn't just because the, um, the success that they had wasn't that equivalent to the harm that they induced on the people. So what do you guys think of that? Um, oh, if yeah. you don't mind, I actually have a little something to add on to that. Um, and this is a little more like biased um, towards disliking some of US policy, but I really think that the United States kind of, and especially, you know, our federal government takes this um, stand that's a bit nationalistic and it's a bit out of their own interests. So it seems natural after a terrorist attack to want to go and pursue, you know, and deal with the causes and the additions to that. So, of course, you would want to go, you know, into Afghanistan and, um, you know, try to deal with the Taliban so that they're not using Afghanistan as a, um, as a front, you know, to hurt the United States more. However, um, we went into there with this what I can only define as imperialistic mindset that we could turn Afghanistan into a democracy. And although in, you know, 2004, they did end up rewriting the constitution to have a democracy. It was just this idea that we could go in and, you know, turn them into a country or that was easier to work with because things like the democratic peace theory, which means democracies are more likely to work with other democracies and in international relations is 
inherently elitist and like, you know, it, it preaches this like Western culture, you know, supremacy and maybe this strays a little bit away from the, the conflict itself, but it's just this idea that the United States thinks that they are, you know, superior altogether. And then they create these governments overseas that are unstable because they're so reliant on U.S. help, either from, you know, our economy, our military, our, you know, our people, our diplomats, so on and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, t <laughs> I totally agree. Caitlin, you're going to say something. Go ahead. Add on top of that. Um, yeah, I just wanted to um, go back to what Rain said. Um, the U.S. involvement has caused a great deal of harm to and great deal of harm compared to the little improvement that um, it made in Afghanistan in the 20 years. And there was, I think, approximately like 241,000 total deaths. But it just... It just, a lot of civilians died during crossfire. Um, the country suffered long lasting consequences with war induced breakdown of public health, security, and infrastructure. And going back to, I think, what Emma was saying, I personally do agree, sort of agree with that. Um, because I guess, as Biden said, like the Afghan military kind of just didn't like step up to fight the Taliban. And that kind of just makes me believe that once the US well, the, once the U.S. left, Afghanistan were, was just super dependent on the U.S. And I feel like they just weren't able to um, funk or sort of like just function as like a normal, like uh, stable government would without like U.S. dependency, which is not good for a uh, country to just rule on its own. I guess. OK, I totally agree. And I was going to ask about Biden's statement because it was kind of controversial. So I guess my question is. Yes, once we left and people have criticized Biden, oh, this is your fault. You pulled troopers, troopers, troops. <laughs> and look what's happening now. Um, and I talked about earlier, well, the American public wanted this all the way back in 2016, et cetera. But did we cause that dependency? Us being there for 20 years, did we, you know, again, going back to what Emma was saying with that theory that democracies work better with democracies, us trying to state build, which for those out there who don't know what state building is, it's. Uh, basically, when another country like the U.S. is trying to create this government, create this democracy specifically, since we are a democracy and we believe democracies are always the best. Um, <laughs> but um, like, did we cause that dependency? I guess that's my question. Do you guys and this is totally opinionated, like you don't have to like, what is what do you guys think? I think a lot of times that just in inherently the way that our world has worked has caused dependency um, and not just in Afghanistan, but anywhere. I mean, you see, you know, when the British went in and colonized India, they built these railroads that were specifically meant to go towards the coast so they could ship out. And it was really just about the, you know, the supplies and the natural resources that were there, not about the people that were living there or the infrastructure they were living be leaving behind. So therefore, India became dependent on things that they could no longer use when they gain independence. It's kind of just the same thing anywhere. If, if you originally start with colonization and you're conforming to, you know, Western and white culture, you're probably going to keep doing that throughout your time as a, you know, um, when you're developing into a democracy and all that. So Afghanistan, when we pulled out all of a sudden, you know, they might've had equipment, but Oh, the United States isn't there to have people do maintenance on your equipment. And, you know, we, we went in and we taught their military how to fight with like U.S. Um, strategies. But then when we pulled out, it was like they, they didn't have a strong enough, big enough military to maintain themselves. So I think we definitely added to that. But then you turn around and you see Joe Biden say, well, if Afghanistan isn't willing to fight for them, then we're going to, you know, themselves we're going to stop putting U.S. troops in harm's way to fight for them. And maybe maybe there is a lick of truth in that. But at the end of the day, when you help facilitate and create dependency on the United States, you can't be shocked when you pull out and, oh, they're dependent on you. But it yeah. seems kind of like the federal government was shocked by that. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Lily. Also, I was just going to say, this isn't like, this doesn't direct answer your question um and don't cringe too hard i want to read like two sentences from a primary source real quick 
um, from high school history class. Wow. Um, but I think it does add on to the point earlier. So I don't like, I don't know how valuable it is. Uh, this is all the way from 1946, but I think in terms of like dependency and nation building and everything, it's really interesting. Uh, it was sent to the Truman administration by this dude bro named George Kennan. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. It's called the long telegram. And it's interesting because it basically predicts everything that the U.S. did in the Cold War. Um, he was like, we are going to throw as a country all of our morals out the window in order to, like, I'm doing air quotes, but you guys can't see it, like, quote unquote, combat communism. Um, but real quick, this is really interesting because he, like, he was a government employee and he writes about our influence on other nations. Um, we must formulate and put forward for other nations a much more positive and constructive picture of the sort of world we would like to see than we would have put forward in the past. It is not enough to urge people to develop political processes similar to our own, blah, 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 blah. They are seeking guidance rather than responsibilities. We should be better able than Russians to give them this. So basically, like, here's this, like, really higher up in the U.S. military that's writing to Truman. And, like, granted, yes, this is in the late 40s. This is before, like, we're talking about, uh, before what we're talking about happened. But I think it's still valuable because, like, this is one of the most high up people in the United States government. And he's straight up saying, like, yeah, no, they're not looking for guidance. They're looking for us to build ideologies and build governments for them because we can't let Russia do the same. And if we don't do it, then Russia's going to do it. And like, that's that's kind of where everything started to go to hell for us. I think, I mean, in terms of like our negative consequences that stemmed from our like maybe, you know, unjustified involvement, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, that primary source was great. I'm, gl- I'm glad that that you included that because I feel like that's really important oh well I just actually wanted to add um you know we were talking about how people go in and create you know um systems of government and all that and the reliance currently um Afghanistan or you know the former has a um Westminster model of government which is essentially just like they modeled their government after the British government which plenty of other um what Western cultures would recognize as sort of like underdeveloped, which is like a horrible elitist term in itself. Um, countries have done the same thing. They they model themselves after the U.S. after um, after British government, and it just goes to show, you know, what um, whoever was speaking prior and now I can't remember was saying. You know, hey, it, it's not really about like helping these people, you know, it's about going in and, like, doing it for them, essentially, and I think that's even just shown in, like, something as simple as the structure of government there. I know, I was gonna ask you, Emma, since you're, like, our government policy person, to kind of go into what the Afghan, like, government, because Biden was, like, because the Afghan government couldn't, with, like, this is their fault, because they couldn't, um, be stable or they couldn't stand themselves against the Taliban after we left, you know, what does that structure kind of look like and why did it crumble? Did we help make that structure? I know you said it's modeled after Britain. If you already covered all, you know, that's perfectly fine. But if you want to dive a little bit into like how their government works and also what that government is going to look like now that the Taliban's running it, you can totally go off on that. Yeah, I've got a little more. Um, So essentially, you know, it, it was before um, the 15th, the um, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. And it was um, kind of similar to both um, the United States and um, like uh, the state's government and British government. Um, You know, you have a president who's the ceremonial head of state, but also like the official head of government, the commander in chief. Um, You have two, you know, bicameral legislature with a lower house and an upper house. Um, We have, you know, a judicial branch. um, And, you know, that's appointed by the... um, the president and all that. So kind of very similar to what we see here. Um, however, that being said, Afghanistan um, is super corrupt. So um, the last time the corruption perception index was updated was 2020. We don't have a 2021 model yet. Um, the index is on a zero to 100 scale, 100 being like there's no corruption, you're a perfect country, that kind of thing. Zero being this is really corrupt. This is as bad as it gets. So for some, um, for some 
contacts at the very bottom is Somalia with a score of 12. Um, and Afghanistan is essentially at the very bottom two with a score of 19. So they're pretty corrupt. And, you know, we define corruption in international relations as when a government cannot enforce their own laws anymore. And we definitely, you know, we've seen this happen before because the Afghanistan was in control um, before um, 2001 when the United States came in and, you know, they're in control again. And before August, as early as July, we saw the Taliban starting to take control of certain territories in Afghanistan, which when you start losing territories to dangerous organizations like this, that's when you really know things are corrupt because the, the government cannot take control of their own country anymore. At that point, they cannot enforce their laws, their rules, their order, their border. You know, you can't protect your borders, that kind of thing. So um, although the government was weak just due to the nature of corruption there, I do think the United States had some hand um, in facilitating how weak that government was. Um, and, and Biden kind of did try to blame in his, um, in his statement speech uh, recently about what's been going on, tried to blame this on the Afghan government. However, I felt like he didn't, and th this is just a personal opinion, take um, the blame that he should have. Like he really evaded the United States portion um, and the United States role that it played and what's going on and just put it on the Afghan government. And, and sure, there, there were some maybe things that were mistakes like, um, the, the leaders of the government there fled to the um, United Arab Emirates um, for safety reasons and all that. However, at, at the same time, um, I think even just the way you look at leaders over there fleeing has to do, um, it is in a negative light just due to um, the reality of like the way Western cultures look at people that are different from themselves and look at refugees that we've turned you know, the United States has turned away time and time again and not really considering the or possibly not considering like the safety aspect of needing to flee um and it, it seems very and again this this is a little more just like of my own perception but it seems very hypocritical to be concerned about when your leaders flee when you know Trump was in office and turned the lights on the White House off and fled to, although just the White House basement, still fled, period. Um, so I think our perception, just from any any person in the States, is kind of um, skewed in the way that we see international relations because of things like that. So yeah, all that to say, um, the Afghan government and the United States probably equally played a role and how unstable things are over there, but that unstable environment definitely played a large helping hand in letting the Taliban take control again. Yeah, totally. Okay, so on top of the kind of government context Emma just gave, I want to talk about like what is the line for U.S. Inter intervention and what the um, I just forgot the new name. The was it the Islamic. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Okay, yes, perfect. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, kind of what that's going to look like. And I want to hand that conversation over to Caitlin and Wren, because it really has to do with U.S. and um, specifically, I mean, Wren is the, the Middle Eastern correspondent, but we're talking about Afghanistan here. So, Caitlin, I know this is a big question, but I mean, we just talked about how the U.S. contributed to this instability, which is leading to the crisis that we're having now. And this is a somewhat like very theory overarching question, but like, what is the line for future intervention in quote unquote underdeveloped states, which Emma mentioned earlier is, is a poor term, um, but like, how do we support freedom and support democracy if that's going to be the ideal political system without causing things like this? And I want both the U.S. perspective from Caitlin, obviously, and then also um, the Middle Eastern perspective from Ren. So go ahead. Okay, well, obviously, the U.S. would probably always, well, because since they're a democracy, they're always going to advocate for democracy. And I feel like they kind of take advantage of weaker countries. And they're like, oh, look, this is another country where we can instill a democracy. in." because, you know, I feel like in their logic, also, they're probably scared that China's probably going to start doing this. But I feel like in order to 
develop a stable government in any sort of country. I think the the baseline of it is maybe U.S. can like sort of set it up for them, but not like be in there for years and years. And then that other country will grow super dependent because that that starting point of that country was super weak. So they're always going to rely on someone. And once they pull out, they're like, oh, well, where's our like guidance here and there? So um, personally, I don't think there's really a like core like, oh, when is the U.S. going to intervene and this and that? Well, and I just feel like the U.S. also works in a very like self-interested like system. Like if you ever read about like realism and stuff, that's a lot of like um, what they talk about. And um, the, um, the U.S. really only intervenes in light of like like threats to the U.S. or just through public pressure because I read about U.S. intervention in the terms of genocide, and the only way they would probably intervene is through public pressure, despite the fact that the U.S. Um, vouches for the Never Again movement after the Holocaust. Um, I think the sheer, like Biden said, the sheer motive was of inter- U.S. intervention was to get back at the people who were responsible for 9-11. And and they did that decades ago. So I personally don't know why they had to stay in there. But um, obviously they sort of established or like helped in establishing a government through democratic election. So I think they did have a huge part in nation building, even though Biden tries to like sheer away from that part of it. Um, I think that answers the question, unless I'm missing some parts. So if Rain can go ahead and give us the Middle Eastern perspective of that. Yeah, go ahead, Ren. You, d- you perfectly answered the question. There's no right answer. It's a very hard question, but go ahead, Ren. Honestly, yeah, that's like a very hard question. I just think it's it's super confusing because I, th- I think after years of destruction and death to like both American troops and like the Afghanistan civilians, it's just, it doesn't make sense to like send troops back in and intervene again the same way like it's been gone. But I think, you know, at the, also this at the same time, I think the international community and the U.S. should like shouldn't just allow the Taliban to take over. You know, you're talking about, you know, women who are like who are terrified for their lives because like, they're, you know, they, they might just get like they're already getting sent into sex slavery and women like girls as young as 12 are being forced to marry um, older Taliban fighters. Like there's a lot of um, there's a lot at stake for the Afghanistan civilians. There's a very oppressive regime awaiting them if the Taliban is really going to like, you know, do what they did before. So um, I, I just, it's, it's honestly a hard question, but I think, you know, after, I think the U.S. failed in a sense, but I also think the Afghan forces like, you know, gave quickly. But I do think like after everything that's happened and after invading their country for so long, then I think there is there needs to be some sort of line of intervention, you know. Okay, so that kind of perfectly. Sorry, Caitlin, do you want to respond? You can go ahead. I feel like um, intervening military again isn't really going to do much, especially since you see from the past there were really very sheer small improvements to the huge amount of deaths that caused through collateral damage or et cetera, et cetera. So I really just don't think that's the right way to approach this, even though um, I'm very in the middle of the situation because there's a lot that's at stake in this, in this um, Afghanistan like situation with the Taliban. Um, But we, the U S in general didn't really have many options of whether to just stay there for till what people said was like for another three months or um, leave. And I'm just really in the middle of like, oh, do I support the withdrawal or not? But um, in terms of like women's rights, um, the Taliban rule will basically (laughs) um, take away the women's rights. And um, I guess it's not very LGBTQ friendly either. but I think Biden's approach with just handling the situation right now with diplomacy and aid is a good it's it's on the right path because it's sort of their responsibility to do that because they kind of like caused um, this. So like um, but one thing I'm really, really concerned about is the August 31st deadline, if anyone's heard of that. Um, basically, um, the U.S. is trying to get everyone out that's vulnerable 
or the U.S. citizens and vulnerable Afghanistans out by the deadline of August 31st. And that's like in less than nine days. And I think there's um, around 60,000 people to evacuate. And it's on the day of August 17th, there was only 2,000 that got evacuated. So um, I think this is a bit of a stretch, but I really hope that Biden does stick to his words to stay there as long as possible to evacuate everyone, because if not, I don't I don't really know what's going to happen because that's like concerning. Yeah. So if you don't mind. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> All three of us just start talking. At the same time. <laughs> that's a good sign. That means that it's a good conversation. Um, just real quick before, because I know this is going to turn into a good discussion. Uh, Caitlin, is that August 31st deadline like strict? Like, did he just say that or is that in some sort of like legislation or deal? Um, I feel like it's sort of a deal with the Taliban because um, the U.S., and the Taliban are in contact because in order to facilitate this thing, but in order to facilitate the evacuation, but um, I'm not sure if it's super strict, obviously, but um, I feel like um, if they're able to extend it in order to get everyone out, that's probably the best bet. But, you know, um, I think the State Department spokesperson said they're doing everything they can. So they're working day by day. They're not really focused on the deadline. They're trying to get as many people out um daily versus focusing on the big picture which I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing to do okay gotcha all right so go ahead Emma or Ren doesn't matter um I just had a quick question so when you're saying like get everybody out is he trying to get the U.S. um civilians out is it just to focus on the U.S. civilians um I think no it's um the people who have like the SIV or is it is it called SIV or is it just the special like visa that they have like um the Afghans like applied for that those yeah the special immigrant visa sorry Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah um so they're trying to get those people out as well as U.S. civilians that are stuck in Afghanistan I think they've gone out all like U.S. personnel like um the government like workers or whatever but um I think that's what they're focused on right now yeah, it just makes me wonder, like, I think there should be some sort of help to especially the Afghanistan women there. I think there should be some sort of evacuation for them, too, because it's it's a, it's very scary. Like, it's actually a very scary situation for them. I think a lot of, like, SIV um, applicants are being processed as well, but I don't know how fast that um, process is going for, I'm pretty sure Afghan women probably applied, but... Um, I don't know how fast that procedure is going right now, but I just hope that everyone gets out safe. Well, and I just wanted to add to that. Like I, you know, Biden was like um, in a statement, he was mentioning that he did want to um, not stay with troops, but stay in the um, fight for like humanitarian aid, which I really do agree with. Um, However, I'm, I'm very skeptical of this because I feel like a lot of what, um, Democrats in the United States say these days is like this kind of neoliberal perspective that's focused more on language than it is on action. So, you know, he knows the right words to say, like, you know, humanitarian aid and human rights crises and violations. But when it comes to actually like putting forth action and legislation to help those things and to help refugees, especially, they consistently drop the ball. Um, so I really, I really hope that's the case um, because, you know, I, I would hate to see a world where, you know, women are stripped of their rights. Um, however, you know, the United States involvement with that is always going to be iffy because you don't ever really know where they stand. And he also in the same statement said um, that it was, you know, he wants to help with human rights issues, diplomacy, and the exact quote was, international influence which is like those two words are always a red flag for me because it's just very like colonizer to say so (laughs) i feel like individually he's saying the right stuff but like in distinction it's just really like neolib you know super neolib sorry (laughs) just made me laugh um okay so emma kind of touched on something i forgot to mention you might have seen if you're listening to this or maybe not, but uh, there was reports like, oh, Biden sending more troops in, um, which is true. But I, I feel like we should all make it clear that he's not sending in troops to fight the Taliban. We have decided that 
quote, America's longest war, as Biden keeps saying. It's over. We're no longer fighting the Taliban, but it's going to be for what he's saying, like humanitarian aid. It's going to be for securing the airport, because like I said, at the very beginning of this episode, uh, people are worried about like se- the security of the airport, um, getting people out. Troops are going in to process those special visas. So that's if you're seeing that that's what that is about. I thought I should clarify that. And then I know we've been talking about women um, somewhat directly, but I want, if you're out there and you're like, why do they keep mentioning Afghan women? What's the big deal? Um, I was hoping Lily, you could give some context to that back to when the Taliban ruled a few decades ago. What did that look like for women and why are people kind of freaking out in terms of human rights with this new kind of like Taliban government? I feel like a lot of American mainstream media outlets um, kind of tend to characterize the Taliban and ISIS, like basically all Islamic extremism as kind of this one big melting pot of like bad for women, which is obviously true. Okay, I'm not disputing that. Like jihad, not good, not good for human rights. Um, let's not support it. Moving on. <laughs> um, but specific to the Taliban, I just kind of want to like make that distinction because we are talking about Afghanistan and we are talking about the Taliban. This isn't necessarily about Al Qaeda or ISIS or anything like that. I forgot who it was earlier, but someone mentioned that ISIS, there are actually like quite, there's quite a bit of tension between ISIS and the Taliban, which I did not know. Um, so I thought that was super interesting. Um, but in terms of human rights overall, super, super restrictive of what you can and cannot do inside your own home. Obviously, like, gay rights don't exist. Like, absolutely no such thing. Um, It's applying a really, really narrow, strict interpretation of the Quran, which not even all sects of Islam agree with and support, which I am by no means, like, a Muslim scholar, so I don't Feel like I have a lot of room to speak there, but that's always kind of what I've heard and what I've read, so I trust it. Um, and obviously, like, you can't go to, you know, if you're a woman and you're living under this very narrow interpretation of religious law, like this, it's super, super bad. You can't go to the market without a man. You, you know, women very, very young are being married off. Like, and I know that this all sounds like buzzwords and like terminology that we hear thrown about in the news all the time, but it's so wild to conceptualize that it's actually happening, you know, especially from my like comfy little Colorado home, like talking on my iPhone. Woohoo. It's so wild to think that like people are actually going through this and I don't know, I, you might want to cut that out, but it's it's bad. But I think the proof of how like intense and real this is, like we just see it like on the news, but this is very real. Like I'm, I'm seeing on the news and like on videos on CNN, like, families literally giving their children away to U.S. troops because they would rather give their, like, literally, it's a baby, like, just recently born. Like, they'd rather give their child away than keep them, like, you know, living, I mean, keep them living with them. And I think, like, you know, the stampedes to the Kabul airport, like, people have died because of how how badly they want to leave. Um, I think all of that just, like, shows how fearful they are of the Taliban. And, like, I think, like not no words can really like even begin to explain to us how like scary it is like how real it is exactly and like I okay I'm not sure if what I'm about to say next is like a little like too intense for like so feel free to cut it but like there is one really famous video from the like not the early 2000s I think it's around like 2010 um and I saw in like I, I don't think I've ever cried as hard like watching a video of something that actually happened, but it's this woman just like being beat with a stick by a Taliban officer. Like, I don't know what it was for. I don't like, I have absolutely no idea. And so for me, seeing that kind of brutality in like a 30 second video clip from CNN, like it's, it's just so horrific to conceptualize that that is going to become the norm. Like, I don't want to try and be politically correct when we're talking about women's rights in Afghanistan, be like, oh, like this might happen, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, this is what's happening. Like you were just saying, people are like, uh, I don't know, it's wild, it's crazy, everything's bad, thanks. (laughs) And like the Taliban has been, like they've been trying to prove that they changed, but like they're already like beating up protesters they're already um you know just firing arms and firing guns at uh, protesters and in crowded places like people have already died like recently in the airport like seven people have died i saw 
uh, today in the airport and that's already because of their violence so if they're trying to prove that they changed I don't think that's really working for them because <laughs> it's just not good yeah who is their marketing director because it's not working out for them um but exactly. no in 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 all seriousness we spent this whole episode getting into the politics of it and the history of it and although those facts are so important at the end of the day this large issue relations between these nations um comes down to the people this is a real issue and this is why politics is important and this is why we're all here today because talking about these issues and how we can form a more free world affects real people and so i think as we near the end of this episode i hope if you're listening what you take away is that at the end of the day i know you probably don't want to read that really long new york times article maybe you didn't even make it through this full episode because it was kind of long but that's the point um but i hope that you understand that people just like you, or not just like you, but people who are human are suffering because of, you know, what the U.S. has contributed to this conflict and because of instability in the Afghanistan government. And we've already gone through all the causes and reasons. And so this this issue, even though it may not be personal to you if you're an American or may not be personal to you if you live somewhere else in the world, make it personal. And And a question I wanted to ask, you know, you guys and I, this is kind of cheesy, but um, I learned this term in relation to learning the Holocaust. But um, how can we be upstanders? So instead of like bystanders and kind of like watching this go by, how can we be upstanders on this issue? Now, of course, we are younger people. We live very far away from Afghanistan. But like for our listeners, like how do you stay educated? Like they just listen to us throw around some fancy terms. Like how do you guys educate yourself and how do you continue to uh, I don't want to use the word woke. I hate that word. What's I don't know. Just stay aware of the issue. Kind of just throwing that question out there. Anybody want to go first? I, I think the best thing you can do wh- when you're trying to educate yourself about anything in American politics and international relations, global stage or domestic, wherever you are, is to start doing research with an open mind. Um, which means not to do research to back your own opinion, but just to learn in general, and then use critical thinking skills to from there form an opinion about it. Um, but to to just go into anything willing to just listen and learn and not argue about it is probably, and, and that just that doesn't just apply. And it's not really about like, how can you help the situation over there? But that's just in general, like when you're looking to educate yourself, that's how I always advise people go about it. And do not use Instagram as a news source. Please don't because- Please. (laughs) The amount of people who do though, it's just, they form like, they read three slides and they're like, oh wait, I'm on this side now. (laughs) It took me maybe like 10 articles to get there but it took you three slides. So there's like a huge difference in doing actual research and just going on social media and forming an opinion on a very biased um, post. So yes. And I think we're all, at least I am sometimes susceptible to doing that. I don't feel bad if you do it. It's super easy. You're scrolling through Instagram. You're like, sure, let me learn about the Yemen humanitarian crisis in 20 seconds. Boom. I'm a scholar. Just kidding. I don't think like that, but I, I get how it can be like super easy to do that, but resist that urge, resist the addiction to learning quick information and deep dive because the satisfaction, not to make it like super selfish, but like the satisfaction you can get sometimes when you learn this information and be able to communicate it like we just did. And again, we are all still learning too. We're not experts. Like learning about the world is super gratifying and satisfying. So that's my contribution. Anyone else have anything to say about Guys, I just want to say that like, raise awareness as much as possible to your friends, to your family. Try to make donations to trustable like um, you know, sources. Um, share links to fundraisers. Sign petitions. Like, do what you can. You know, even if it's raising awareness, I think that's like the best thing that you could do. And just start a conversation and be try to be like informative about it and do your research and also about like the. Like, even if you're going to do your research, a lot of news sources are biased. So try to look at, like, a variety of news sources, too. So that's just my little, you know, advice. <laughs> um, Lily, do you have anything to add? It's okay if you don't. We, we kind of covered it all. 
I was just going to say, like, getting more into specifics, I know one NGO that is working a lot, or at least, like, trying to work with Afghani refugees right now is the International Rescue Committee. Um, I've been seeing them do a bunch of stuff, and, like, as far as I know, like, don't quote me on this, but I think they're, like, pretty well recognized, pretty reliable. Um, and the other thing that I was going to say, I don't think this is just Colorado-specific, um, but I know... There were a couple mosques, like not directly in my area, but within like a one or two hour drive that are hosting really, really big like food drives and like supply drives. So like diapers, personal hygiene items, like canned food, etc. Because um, they're about to be hosting a lot of people who don't really have that much. Um, and there was another organization I saw that was working with like coordinating uh, supplies. And I want to say it was like the Muslim Youth Project or something. But if I'm wrong, I'm just going to sound really stupid. Um, but if you look at mosques, especially mosques, but really any like NGO in your area, there's a good chance that they will be looking for tons of donations, especially in the next like week or two. So like, I don't know anyone's financial situation. I'm not trying to be like, oh yeah, go like drop 200 bucks on stuff that you like may or may not be able to contribute. But if you can, I feel like that's maybe a little bit more of a direct like action step you can take. Bam, right there. So many methods. Okay. Um, so if we don't have anything else to say, I had a lot of really intense questions to ask, but I think this is a, a, a good <laughs> meaty episode. <laughs> I hate that I just used that word. Um, anything you guys want to sign off with? I will, before you guys start, I just want to say thank you if you've made it this far. Um, I, I think all of us look forward to making more podcast content. We have 20 more, more than 20 more people on the team who you will see. It's not going to be the same people each episode. It's going to be very different. Um, we're doing three episodes a month. If you didn't already know that through Instagram, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. We are still learning and yes. Okay. Anything you guys want to say to our listeners? No. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening, Thank guys. Um, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye, <laughs> Bye guys. Bye.